tonight, the precept is, it goes, I vow not to take what is not given. Sometimes also, I vow not to take what is not freely given. And the little verse that we say in the full moon ceremony after that, or that the doshi says, that's Mary, is we all repeat, clack, I vow not to take what is not given. And then uh, the little poem that comes after that is the self and objects are such as they are, two yet one. The gate of liberation stands open. The self and objects are such as they are, two yet one. The gate of liberation stands open. So what's that have to do with not stealing? Well, I'll, do, I'll get back to that. So as, as Kelly and Liam talked about, all of the precepts can be looked at on three different levels. They can be looked at on the relative level. That's like the conventional sort of uh, literal level. I'm calling it relative. You could call it literal, whatever. The next level is the bodhisattva level or compassionate level, which is when the precept seems to be a little bit stretched. It's not taken quite literally, but it's, it's for the benefit of, of others. And then finally, the emptiness absolute or Buddha level, which is where it's, I'll just explain that a little bit as I get there, but it's, it's about the, a level that's only really un understood by intuition and experience probably. So on the relative level, what does it mean not to take what is not given? Well, I found that uh, the literal side of it actually isn't that easy. I mean, if a lot if you think oh, I don't, you know, I don't take things. I I've never stolen anything in my life, or if I did, I was a kid and I was shoplifting or a prank or 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 you know, most people. I don't know. Maybe some of you are current shoplifters right now and have a problem with that, but I, I sort of doubt it. Um, it's it's harder than it sounds, is what I'm trying to say. Like I was reading Diane Rosetto's book, and she talked about paying attention when you're in a in a restaurant, not to grab more napkins than you need, not to grab more ketchup than you need. I, it was a little thing, but I kind of had a reaction to it. I kind of said, "Come on, you know, let me have a break." I'm, you know. It seemed kind of petty to be like on that level. There's other things too, like the other side of it is if you don't receive praise well, like that's me. So giving and receiving are just two sides of the one coin and the preset uh, includes them both. So it's common for me to, if I don't take a second, if somebody says, you did a great job, Steve, or, or something to kind of like find some way to say, Oh, you know, I was just doing my job or my pleasure without, not that it's wrong to say those things, but that I don't want to like receive the gift of praise sometimes. And what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that what we're doing? We're being humble, right? But no, it's not really humility. That's actually can be an affront to the person who is trying to give you something, who's trying to give me something in the circumstances. There was an interesting 
uh, example of that today. In fact, that turns out that a colleague of mine, I'm, I think you all know that I'm now a short timer at my current job. And uh, somebody told me that they just said, sort of out of the blue, they remembered that I'd had scotch with them once at, at a bar and they said, so do you like scotch or whiskey? And I thought, oh, they're probably gonna buy me a gift. And my impulse, and I wrote this without even thinking it, was, well, I gotta watch out for drinking because sometimes it can trigger my migraines. They didn't say, I'm gonna get you a bottle. They didn't say anything like that, but I kind of suspected that. And then after I wrote that, I thought, well, you know, that's not totally true. It doesn't always cause a problem. Once in a while, I do have a drink. And then they explained, well, I wanted to have a toast with you on your last day off. We'd have a remote toast. And I was thinking of getting you a bottle, but I don't want to get you anything that would hurt you. And I thought, oh, I may just made it difficult for them. And I, and I actually wouldn't mind having like a drink of good, good whiskey once in a while, good scotch. So anyway, I backtracked and I said, well, I do drink once in a blue moon, maybe it'll be a blue moon. I think I kind of solved the situation and I think we were both happy with the outcome, but I kind of, that's like an impulse of mine. It's, it's, it's to kind of, that's where I work with the precept is I don't like receiving gifts. I think I'm, I, I don't know why, I don't know what, what's about that, but praise and gifts are, are hard for me. I had another example, but I think I'll just skip it because the point here is that um, just so I was preparing for this lecture, it, it, I mean, this uh, class, it occurred to me that actually the point of all these, this attention to detail, not taking too many napkins or not stealing time, you know, if um, uh, some of you maybe think I'm going on too long and stealing your time, you know, so not stealing time, whatever it is. The point of it isn't to try to do no wrong and be a good person. None of this is about being a good person. It's about waking up. And so if I pay attention to whether I'm taking too much from the restaurant of the, of the napkins, if I pay attention to how I'm using time, if I pay attention to whether I give and receive gifts well, I'm waking up. And when I notice, when we notice that there's something going on there, some resistance, we've woken up to it. Then we have a choice. Do nothing, sit with the awareness, or create some judgment, create something new. So that's compassion's way, of course, in our tradition is to be aware, to to stay close and do nothing. That gets a little bit beyond the literal meaning to the bodhisattva or compassionate meaning of the precept. So this is when the precept is violated in a very literal manner, but it's done for the benefit of others. So somebody steals in order to give to others, Robin Hood maybe, or when somebody receive something they don't want because it, it'll benefit others, that kind of thing. I particularly like this. So uh, I have a personal story before I get to it. It's um, that which also illustrates there are 
consequences for the bodhisattva realm of uh, the compassionate realm where you're literally violating, you're stretching the meaning of the, uh, the precept. Uh, we once had a at, a, at a home where I was uh, kind of the person in, in charge of everybody and the roommates, and I had several roommates. There were two things happening. There was a, a house rule that our landlord, not me, had instituted no pets. And there was also one of my roommates had a kitten there. Problem was that she wasn't treating that kitten very well. I'm not sure whether I would have been really hardcore about the rule of no cats, but she just didn't. She she just would not feed it uh, uh, except when she remembered, and she would you know like kind of almost slam the door on it. And she said, "Why is it so needy? Why is it crying all the time?" And it was just heartbreaking. So I conspired with. Uh, a friend of mine to find a new owner for the cat and to sneak the cat away while the roommate was gone. And I thought, hey, I'm doing a good thing. Plus taking care of the no cats, no pets in the house rule. But another roommate who was a little bit suspicious of me said, I really like that cat. I hope you did that for the right reason. And that immediately caused me to have some self-doubt of, hmm, should I do that for the right reason? And even though my heart was clear, it's, you know, there was no way out of the consequences of having a moment of self-doubt because that's, I'm always introspective and people question me, I tend to do that. And also, um, yeah, there was some self-interest in that I didn't want to get in trouble with the landlord, um, even though I think the primary reason was for the cat. And I want to talk about um, something a little bit deeper um, also that um, John Diodo Lori, uh, who, wrote The Heart of Being, which is one of our reference books that you can read if you'd like, it wasn't required. He talks about teachers who are functioning as a thief. He says, sometimes out of reverence for life and compassion, it is necessary to steal. In a sense, every time I steal from you something that you are holding on to, I violate this precept. But from the point of view of compassion and reverence for life, I am maintaining the very same precept. One student might appreciate that the teacher is functioning as a thief, taking away everything that is precious to him or her and bow in gratitude. Another student might get very angry at exactly the same thing. Either way, karma is still being creative. Karma does not differentiate between good and bad. Karma is the force that propagates itself and continues. Good and bad are the dualistic reference frame we apply to it. So I'm seeing him as saying that, uh, yeah, that's what teachers do. Zen teachers pull the rug out from under us. That's their job. They make us uncomfortable. And sometimes they make us feel like, well, what now? You just ripped that off from me. Feel like we're being stolen from. But sometimes we can appreciate they've done so much for us by taking from us. Or we might not appreciate it. We might not appreciate it till years later. The same action might land completely wrong. Teachers aren't perfect, except I understand that Mel was, but besides that, uh, no teachers are perfect.
so yeah, things can backfire. And so if, if one violates a precept, even for a greater good, then you still expect to deal with the consequences. Sort of like civil, civil disobedience uh, in the civil rights era that people would disobey the law, um, like go to a segregated area and expect to be arrested for it. Or in some cases, unfortunately, even beaten up or worse. So that's, so that's letting go. That's the bodhisattva level. Now, the absolute level of the precept of not taking what isn't given is where you're looking at, and all the precepts, you can look at them this way. You're looking at not taking in a world that is so completely interdependent. There's interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh was fond of saying, and uh, that, that nothing belongs to anyone. Nothing has any self-nature in the first place. So there's no separate thing that can be given or received and no separate being to give or receive. And Dogen really speaks well on this in the Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance. Um, he, he says, he begins by saying, giving means non-greed. Non-greed means not to covet. Not to covet means not to curry favor. Even if you govern the four continents, you should always convey the correct teaching with non-greed. It is to give away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know, to offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Tathagata, or again, to offer treasures you had in your former life to sentient beings. Whether it is of teaching or material, each gift has its value and is worth giving. Even if the gift is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. The question is not whether the gift is valuable, but whether there is merit. As I'm reading more, I'm thinking, wow, I should go on longer, but I'm gonna stop for a moment. I mean, like, it's hard to stop with Dogen sometimes. The thing that really strikes me as the most about the absolute or empty level of not taking is when he said you can offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Tathagata, that's the Buddha. And even if the gift is not your own, there is not no reason to keep from giving. But I do want to read a little bit more that I wasn't planning to read, but now that I see it here, it just hope you enjoy it too. He continues, when you leave the way to the way, you attain the way. At the time of attaining the way, the way is always left to the way. When treasure is left just as treasure, treasure becomes giving. You give yourself to, self, to yourself and others to others. The power of causal relations of giving reaches no divas, I'm sorry, reaches to devas, human beings, and even enlightened sages. When giving becomes actual, such causal relations are immediately formed. I'll read the middle part again. When treasure is left just as treasure, treasure becomes giving. You give yourself to yourself and others to others. Yeah, don't forget to give to yourself. Include yourself. Allow yourself to be given too. And 
give without taking effort, without saying, again, without saying I'm good, without saying I'm bad for not doing it. Another point that this reminds me of is that Cherry Oliva once said that she felt that like she was being held when doing Zazen. I wasn't sure what that was like until I experienced something like that myself. And I thought she meant physically held, like embraced. Maybe she did. I didn't ask her because it was years later when anything like this I noticed. But what I feel and I, is that, yes, there's a lot of effort in Zazen, but there's a way that Zazen holds us, that it supports us. It gives. So if, if we give wholeheartedly to our Zazen, our Zazen gives wholeheartedly back, and there's nothing, nothing left behind. It's complete unconditional awareness and kindness. Resistance is futile. Because we all exist in Zazen, because everything exists in Zazen, there's complete compassion in Zazen. So that's what I have to say. I guess I'll take some questions or comments and then we'll move on to, to Kate's part. Kelly. Thank you, Steve. So I was just kind of going back to sort of the early part of your talk. I, I was sort of stirring around in my head is, you, you know, we were talking, you were talking about um, taking what is not given, but then there are potentially righteous situations in which you might do that. Is there value in determining that? Is there value in determining whether, um, let's, let's, let's say your intention to take what is not given is righteous or not? Or, or does it just make more sense to just say, hey, I'm not even going to evaluate it. I, I just know that I, I shouldn't take what is not given. Well, that's a that's the colon, isn't it? To me, if I were to say it's completely intuitive, you've got to just trust. Then I'd be contradicting myself when I said earlier that the point of having the relative or traditional or literal way of seeing it in your mind is to be aware and awake. So, so I can't say that. Well, I could say it, but. I would kind of lose credibility. Uh, <laughs> you know, to, to me, doing something, I would think that um, you have to really examine. You have to have the mind of non-greed. And I don't know whether my story about myself with the cat fully illustrated that. I was more wanting to talk about the consequences of trying to do something that I thought was the right thing, even though a complicated thing at the time. But that was so many years ago that I can't access my heart then, but I think I did the right thing. You know? But I, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't actually thinking about your specific situation. You were kind of talking about Robin Hood earlier. And I was I, and I was like, well, what are the situations in which I violate the, this precept? And then I was like, well, maybe some of them are good. <laughs> and, and, then, and then I was like, mm, maybe this line of thought is not so good for me. <laughs> well, that's that's actually why I felt that it was important to to say you take the consequences. Yeah, there were several 
stories that Reb told that I decided not to retell, but about monks who had violated the precept against not taking, but done it for a, a good reason, who actually had to face the consequences, sometimes very harsh consequences, yeah. um, including like coming back in the, in the next life as a cow or, or something like that. And I don't remember why somebody had to come back as a cow, but the idea isn't that you're, you get a free ride because you're doing something for a compassionate reason. In fact, it's a higher standard. Mm -hmm. I think we have to very carefully examine if, if we're doing something that appears to be violating a precept and we think it's for a higher reason, is there even a shred of self-interest in that? You know, be, we've got to be careful with that. We've got to, and, and by self-interest, I mean, I mean, greed, really. I don't so much mean the self-interest of brushing your teeth. I mean, the, the self-interest of, of what's in it for me, that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you. Zach. I'm guessing most of us are thinking of examples when we've been greedy or taken something that wasn't given. But when I was, re I was reading a little bit about this, precept and read about conservation of resources and treading lightly on the land. And I think maybe there are examples where we do not take what is not given to us. And we can think about that too. You know, trying to tread lightly and, um, I had another thought, a question, I guess. So one thing I did think about was, I'm into photography. There's photographers I really like. I kind of borrow ideas from them that they didn't give me permission. Mm -hmm. Am I taking what was not given or am I maybe just borrowing until I have my own style or my own way of doing it. If you found out that somebody was borrowing your style, how would you feel? Uh, that would be awesome. Okay. That would mean I, I, I think it is. I think I think your reaction just shows how nuanced that is. Yeah. Well, yes. Maybe they were compassionate and wanted everyone to. Yes. Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. I'll just say that Picasso had a great quote about that. I'll have to find it about all artists steal from other artists. It's and there's even a book I think that called "Steal Like an Artist" or something. Oh like yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, Chia, Chia borrowed that and, and kept reading snippets of it to me. Yeah, seemed like an interesting book. I also wanted to just add uh, when Steve and I were talking about this precept and he mentioned the part in Rosetto about stealing a napkin from a, you know, taking an extra napkin from the restaurant or something like that. I thought of Sunny when we were first together, every time we'd go somewhere where they had extra ketchups or salts or something, he'd take a big handful and bring them home. And if we were at a hotel, he always took the extra soaps. And, and I, 
I kind of said, you know, we don't really need all that stuff. And, 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 but he explained to me, it's a habit that he learned growing up because he, they grew up very poor. So whenever there was extra anywhere you, that was there for the taking, uh, he would take it. So that, that, that gave me pause and it made me think about that differently. And, and, uh, was another way to to see he was giving that to his family mainly at the time so i just wanted to mention that yeah i like that story and i'm I'm glad you mentioned it i sort of debated whether there was a way to obliquely make a reference because we talked about that but i'm I'm glad you mentioned it so it added a little bit to a perspective about what what is one person's taking doesn't feel like taking to another person depending completely on our our own causes and conditions right how we were raised our environments and everything okay well i will hand the baton over to kate thank you steve so i wanted to mention too that i think we said this before but on our our ceremony, these are called the clear mind precepts. And there's something about language for me that um, can trigger me or put me at ease. And grave automatically brings up resistance in me for some reason. It just automatically puts up the wall. And clear mind seems more to the point for me because that's what I'm aspiring to, is a clear mind and a clear heart, so that I might have a more compassionate response. So I just wanted to make that point. And I find it really valuable, actually, to read over this ceremony. That's why we made it the only required reading. Because the precepts are were ethical guidelines designed for monastics, and they've transitioned into something bigger and a little different, I think, for lay practitioners and and those of us who are not in monasteries. So, so the meaning shifts a little bit, I think, in our conditions. But what this reminds me of is what I'm aspiring to. And I can forget that on a daily basis. So to just go through and reread them and to have some sense of, yes, this, this is what I believe. This is what I aspire to, to even think about ethical conduct and to have people sitting here talking about it and studying with, with me is really refreshing, especially in this world where there's so much crazy, unethical behavior right in our faces every day that I'm really happy that we have these to study and that people are still interested in ethical conduct. So anyway, true confession here, when we were preparing for this class and we laid it all out and we divided them up. I thought, 
oh no, Steve and I have to talk about the sexuality one. <laughs> it was really, oh, do I have to do that? And so when Steve and I were deciding, I thought, well, I should probably be the one to talk about that one because I feel some resistance to sexuality or talking about misusing sexuality. Not because I'm a prude, I'm really not a prude. Uh, I think that has to do with the way I was raised. This topic is something that's private, should not be discussed in public. So I, I kind of looked at that and I thought, okay, I can see that in myself. That's part of my resistance. And it's, it's also a really loaded subject culturally, socially, politically, personally. I've lived through sort of repressive view in my childhood and then the feminist movement and consciousness raising, which was really, really useful for me as a woman. And that I'm not sure that I got free in a deeper sense from what I got from that experience. So I'm really happy that there's so much written about this in all of the reference books that we have. Uh, but I decided to focus on uh, the writings by Rosetto and also Being Upright by Reb Anderson because they said similar things in their writings. Reb had two Zen stories, and they both talked about one Zen story. And the point of this precept, Reb's first thing that he says is, the precept of not misusing sexuality means not to harm. That's pretty clear. And... It also means to bring forth benefit, not just a little benefit, but the greatest and highest benefit for all beings. Misusing sexuality derives from greed, which is also interesting because when Steve and I were talking about the second precept or the one that he was talking about, not taking what is not given, that has to do with greed as well. So he says is that acting out our greed is actually a form of stealing. So I think where I'll go from there, because it's a good, it's a good place to start, I think, is I'm going to read the stories. And in Reb's book, it's under a section called The Compassionate Meaning of Not Misusing Sexuality. There is a famous Zen story about a monk who was offered an opportunity. There was an old woman in China who had supported a monk for over 20 years. She had built a little hut for him and fed him while he was meditating. Finally, she wondered just what progress he had made in all this time. To find out, she obtained the help of a rich girl, of a girl rich in desire. Go and embrace him, she told her and then ask him suddenly, what now? 
The girl called upon the monk and without much ado, caressed him asking what he was gonna do about it. His response was, an old tree grows on a cold rock in winter, replied the monk somewhat poetically. Nowhere is there any warmth. The girl returned and related what he had said. To think I fed that fellow for 20 years, exclaimed the old woman in anger. He showed no consideration for your need, no disposition to explain your condition. He need not have responded to passion, but at least he could have evidenced some compassion. So at once she went to the hut of the monk and burned it down. I love these Zen stories. <laughs> they don't put up with much. I'm just going to go to burn down his hut. <laughs> so I thought that was really, it was useful for me to read that story. In the Rosetto books, she says that he just pushed her out the door into the rain. So it was a little more forceful, like, get out of here, don't bother me. And the second story is, and I didn't know this either, in times of famine, the daughters of farmers in Japan sometimes allowed themselves to be sold to brothels in order to save their families. It was considered an act of self-sacrifice and filial piety. Under such circumstances, these women did not necessarily lose their self-respect. They were sometimes called lotuses in muddy water. The following story took place during the Tokugawa era. Zen master Mokudo was passing through the capital Edo when hailed by a prostitute from a second story window. He asked how she knew his name and she replied, when you were a boy on the farm, we were neighbors. After you became a monk, there was a bad harvest and so I am here. He went up and talked to her and she asked him to stay the night. He paid her fee to the house and gave some more to her. They talked of their families till late and then the bedding was spread and she prepared to go to bed. He sat in meditation posture. She plucked his sleeve and said, you have been so kind, I would like to show my appreciation. No one will know. He said to her, your business is sleeping, my business is sitting. Now you get on with your sleeping and I'll get on with my sitting. And he remained unmoving the whole night. He drew a line with clarity, kindness, and good humor. So I just want to ask, what do you think the difference between those two stories is? I have my own idea, but I thought it'd be nice to ask all of you. Liam? Oh, well, I think the thing that jumps out is the compassion. One has compassion and one has <laughs> cold harshness. Right. Hey, skillfulness. Skillful, doing what's appropriate, you know, without blurring lines or anything, but just being kind, showing kindness, showing consideration. Oh, no, no, I'm all about celibacy. Get out of here. <laughs> right. So it's about them. Yeah, and not exactly. About the them. other person. Anybody else? I don't want to pressure anybody to say anything because I, I have more to say about this, but. Okay, so 
in the first story for me, he appears to be misusing sexuality. He's not misusing sexuality, but he's not demonstrating compassionate skill. And in the second story, the monk draws a line, but he does it with clarity, kindness, and good humor. So I think that's a good guideline uh, in, in any circumstances. And Rosetto, the way she terms this, she always uses the language instead of saying, I vow not to, she says, I take up the way. So her phrasing for this precept is, I take up the way of engaging in sexual intimacy respectfully and with an open heart. And both she and Reb talk about intimacy. And true intimacy means standing openly with ourselves and others. And I, I think there's a lot to chew on in this precept about what does it really mean to be intimate with ourselves and with the people close to us as well. And that's kind of scary, like many things that we sit with on the cushion. <laughs> I think it's one of those things. Really seeing who you are, what's there, is, is sometimes difficult. So I think that's part of my resistance to this particular precepts. It's, it's very touchy for me for some reason. I, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. So I, again, the question for me is, it seems when it comes to misusing sexuality, the best way for me to work it work with it is to think about what might that mean for me. It doesn't just have to do with sexual partners. Some people are celibate or they're, they live singly, but sexuality comes up in so many other ways. I mean, we've just gone through the Me Too movement, all of the gender issues that are up. I have a nephew who came out to us as queer a couple of years ago and uses the he, they pronouns. And I don't have a difficult reaction to that at all. I really am a live and let live kind of person. My discomfort comes from trying to say the right thing <laughs> and not not use the wrong pronoun or things like that but to be respectful of that you know to honor that in him whether it's uncomfortable or unfamiliar to me and there's lots of people in our community now who introduce themselves with what their pronouns are and I think keeping an open mind and an open heart. And what I see in some other people is there's an irritation with having to think about their language that hard again. 
And I think that's, for me, that's just a selfish response. I need to keep an open heart and understand that gender is fluid. (laughs) So that's another thing that came up for me when, when thinking about this precept. And there was something in Rosetto that I also wanted to read. And I didn't think about this in terms of the three different levels. The little poem that comes after, I vow not to misuse sexuality. Let the three wheels of self, object, and action be pure. With nothing to desire, one goes along together with the Buddhas. And that's beautiful and lovely. And I'm not sure I know anyone who doesn't desire anything. <laughs> so that's, that's a, a very big aspiration. I, I think the, the, ch- the challenge and the, the, the work in this precept is in actually facing what your desires are and understanding what they are like that second monk. I mean, he may have had a lot of desire for that prostitute and he he didn't act on it, but he acted kind of and with compassion, but he acknowledged his desire. Whereas the other monk, I think my understanding in that story is that he just grabbed a good Zen saying and pushed her out the door because he couldn't face his own desire or had never worked with it. So let me find one more thing and then I will open it for questions. So she asks, what might it mean to misuse sexuality? The power of this energy doesn't dampen easily. Even attempts to pigeonhole it into right, wrong, good, bad, moral, immoral, are at best limited restraints. So she takes this precept not so much as a restraint, but as an invitation to know it intimately. And I like that idea of taking it as an invitation. I kind of see all the precepts that way. They're not commandments. They're an open door, a way for you to examine your own feelings and past history and cultural pressure and all of those things. And so that when you're off your cushion, you can hopefully I aspire to have a compassionate response. So I think that's all I have to say about this precept. Right now, does anybody have any questions or comments? Jody? Yeah, Kate, thank you so much uh, for sharing that and the way that you shared it. I read a similar take on that story about the woman who was housing the monk and brought a girl in and the monk is basically like no thank you and this idea of it 
his response being very self-centered and just about what he needed and not thoughtful about her needs. Um, I thought I found that to be an interesting take on the process of um, misconduct around sex. You know, my experience throughout my entire life, sex has always been, or the thought of sexuality or experiencing intimacy has always been very difficult and confusing. One, I mean, I was very clear about my sexual orientation very early on in a world where the messaging was not consistent with what I was experiencing. Same with gender. I mean, I identify as female, but uh, I didn't have the language before to identify as they because I didn't really have that language. I understand that now it's a very freeing feeling to come into an understanding that I'm okay with being identified that way. Just like I'm okay with being identified as queer, although that took time too. The deeper work I've had to do, and I think Zazen really lends this space for me to do it, is to explore the long-time misunderstanding between sex and intimacy. And to be a sober woman for a very long time now, I've gotten to say to myself, it's not because I was drunk that I acted this way sexually with somebody. I can't use that excuse anymore. I haven't been able to use that excuse for many years now. So I really have had to look at like, what, what is this confusion for me? Like when I meet someone and there's this very strong, intense feeling and the confusion of, is this a sexual feeling or is this a desire for intimate contact with another person wherein I do not have to give myself sexually, nor do they have to, in order to maintain that level of intense intimacy that's there. And that has been some really deep, long work I've done for a while now. And I've even done work in therapy around it. I've, and it's something that um, I think this precept really speaks to. For me, you know, not taking on shame around fantasy or not taking on feelings of embarrassment about desire for intimacy with others that doesn't involve sex and understanding that I don't have to give sex to be intimate with other people. That was a really mixed message I lived with for so long in my young life and carried that into adulthood. So this topic of the misuse or misconduct around sex is very personal and, and deep for me. And I'm, I'm glad that we're exploring it. And I think hours could be spent like really, you know, dissecting this precept and um, thinking about how it plays out in life. Anyway, I just, I just wanted to say, I appreciate that you took this on, even though you were like, oh, no, because <laughs> you know, <laughs> For me, that's where my deepest aha moments come from is when I'm so resistant, but I do it anyway. And I dive in, I say, okay, let me just, let me wear this tight fitting jacket for a minute. And hopefully over time, they'll kind of loosen and I can relax around it. And I can, I can feel myself in the experience around this discomfort and eventually not feel discomfortable, uncomfortable. And then even more being able to have a and compassionate way of being with others who are struggling or who are trying to figure that out as well, regardless of whether it's stealing or sex or 
whatever it is. So anyway, thank you so much, Kate, for taking on this and sharing it with us. Thank you, Jody. I appreciate your openness and feedback too. And it made me think the thing that I wanted at the very beginning of the chapter of in Rosetto's book on I Take Up the Way of Engaging in Sexual Intimacy Respectfully in an Open Heart, there's a, I don't recognize the name of the teacher in this quote. It's Sung Yan Yu Lu, Dainin Han Joko Jokyo. And there's, there's a footnote that I could look up if anybody wants me to. But for right now, I'm just going to read the quote because it made me kind of smile when I read it. In order to know the way in perfect clarity, there is one essential point you must penetrate and not avoid the red thread of passion between our legs that cannot be severed. Few face the problem, and it is not at all easy to settle. Attack it directly without hesitation or retreat. For how else can liberation come? I thought, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. And Steve? Yeah, I heard that story a little bit differently when you told it about the first of your two stories. That, yeah, I think it was probably Reb's version that apparently there was a little nuance couple of nuances. One was that apparently the, the young lady actually did have some kind of a impulse control issue when it came to her, her sexuality, right? I didn't, I didn't remember that being, I sort of thought she was there simply to test the monk, but she actually did have that um, issue. At least something in the way you read it led me to, to feel that that was the case. Yeah, in his story, he said the old woman found a desirous girl. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not told the same way in the Rosetto version of the story. So desirous as opposed to desirable. So she felt desire. Yes, I guess. Yes. Well, why, why, didn't I, why didn't I go with that? Because it seems like if, if that's, you know, if, um, if that's the meaning it adds a little nuance that that what do people who have who maybe have impulse control issues or who are you know maybe very young and need advice on their sexuality um, what happens when they come across somebody who has been practicing for many years and you would hope they'd have some insight and she may have been kind of set up to try to seduce him but the response of his, his response, I can see now by this, it was not only misusing sexuality and that he wasn't acknowledging how he probably felt, but it also was misusing sexuality and that he just made her leave without even saying, let's sit down and explore these strong feelings. Right. I don't know what he could have done, but uh, certainly the, the lack of compassion wasn't just kicking her out, which was bad enough, but it was also not giving her any benefit of, of the wisdom you would, you would imagine that somebody who's been sitting for 20 years would have. Um, yep. And so, I think that's what the old woman saw. And so mm -hmm. she turned down his head. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Anybody else? Kelly. Yeah, I thank you, Kate. That, that was great. And and I, I'm really glad that we're exploring this as well. I, I was I was thinking about something that you said again kind of early on in your talk where you were talking about discussing ethics. And it's come up a lot for me lately, this idea of of discussing ethics and 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 trying to form ethics and and you know i work a lot in information security stuff so everyone's talking about ai right now and and one of the things that i keep coming back with when i you know i, I you hear a, a lot of sides of this argument but one of the things i keep coming back with is you can't you can't make these sort of leapfrog intellectual jumps you have you have to build scaffolds and those scaffolds are not only like we need to put one piece of information on top of another but they're also ethical so we we need to just decide what our ethics are and we don't necessarily i think have to all agree but we need to have made some sort of determination even if it's not super specific that, that we have ethics and we believe in them and that maybe uh, when we're talking about things like like taking what is not given or misusing sexuality that that we're going to consider them ethically and, and operate based on a sort of wholehearted consideration of those things and so it's just you know it struck a chord when you said that early on I was like yeah that these are the discussions that we need to be having especially as we kind of move into the 22nd century and and start feeding uh, uh millions of processors all of our known information anyway that 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 just kind of cropped up for me so i kind of wanted to say it great thank you and i'm really glad we're studying precepts part of the reason reb wrote his book is because he felt that there wasn't enough attention paid in early training to to the precepts and how important they are to our practice and the more i'm with the precepts and i mean i i sewed a rakusu and <laughs> that really deepened it was the first time i really studied the precepts in that way i mean i attended the full moon ceremonies but it's just been a really valuable practice and also encouraging and heartening for me to deepen my understanding. So thank you for that. Well, we're at 7.20 and uh, I think we said we'd end by 7.15 or 7.30, depending. So unless anybody has Anything else to add or any questions? I think we can close with beings are numberless. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. 
I vow to become it. 